Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Join us for a journey as we go back to the great civilizations of the past. Who were the people? What were they like? How did they begin and how did they end? Let's find out on episode 38, 805 to 800 BC. Previously on The Fan of History, the Neo-Assyrian Empire's western territories, Syria, have been neglected for two, 22 years. To the north of the empire, the power of Urartu is ever-increasing. Dan, what do we have going on now? We have plenty going on. We are going to make the run to the end of the 9th century BC. And we will also get some news from Europe. News Europe, from the Europe. Backwater of the world. <laughs> no one knows anything about Europe in this time. What's going on? I know something about Europe at this yeah, time. And I will tell you at the end of the episode. <laughs> All right. Stay tuned, folks. <laughs> So, first we check in. Who is king of Assyria? And it's still Adad-Nirari III, the sixth king of the empire. Assyria is the strongest state in the Near East, with Urartu to the north as a close second. And it, it was in 827 BC that the last Assyrian army went west to kick around the states of the Mediterranean coast and Syria and Lebanon. Mm-hmm. So now it's time to go west. And in 805 BC, Adad-Nirari III brings the royal Assyrian army to the west. This happens more than one time in the years coming, and the exact number of campaigns and dates are not well known or understood. But there is a time of campaigning for 10 years, so from 805 to 796 BC, there uh, are these Western campaigns. And it is sort of the last hurrah of the early Neo-Assyrian Empire. This is the last of the great kings. 
uh, or not even great. It's the last of any decent king. Oh no. <laughs> and uh, it's the last victories as well. Ouch. But before we go west with Adonir III, we have to talk about the new powerful player in Assyria. Earlier, it has been mainly the king. We had this brief episode with Diane Usher, the field marshal, under Shalmaneser III. But here comes a guy who is such an interesting fellow. He is Shamshi Ilu. He is a noble from the Bit Adini tribe of Arameans. The Bit Adini tribe fought against, we have mentioned them a lot of times. Oh, yeah. They fought against Ashurnasipal II. They were massacred by him. They fought against his father. They were, uh, his son, Shalmaneser III. They were conquered by Shalmaneser III. And their capital of Til, or their important city at least, of Tilbarsip, mm-hmm. was made into Kar Shalmaneser. Castle Shalmaneser, Fort Shalmaneser, <laughs> Festung Shalmaneser. <laughs> and this has been the main Assyrian military position towards the west. The campaigns to the west goes from Kar Shalmaneser. And in the time that has gone by since Shalmaneser III, the powerful noble families of the Bitadini tribe have been integrated into the Assyrian structure. Remember, the Assyrians are not racists they will beat up everyone and make them an Assyrian. <laughs> so they, they, their attitude to immigration is like, we'll take you and make you Assyrians. <laughs> so it's, um, right, they right. are very offensive, <laughs> very right. aggressive immigration policy. <laughs> Whether you they like want it or not. people to immigrate. And the family of Shamshi'ilu has really used this to their benefit. So it's probable that Shamshi Ilu was educated at the Assyrian royal court. Hmm. And he has now risen to the rank of field marshal in the army of Dabnirar III. He is the second in command of the royal army. And this shows how far competent non-Assyrians can rise in the Assyrian Empire. And there will be tons of examples of this during the rest of the Assyrian Empire that you you really judged by your competence, in a sense. So if you play along with the Assyrians, you can become a powerful Assyrian. Wow. And this is probably the rise to power of Shamshi'ilu, because Shamshi'ilu will be around for such a long time, and soon he will be more important than the king himself. But this, it is debated if this happens during the reign of Adad Nirari III, but I don't think it does. I think he is the second in command, and that his relationship with Adad Nirari III is the same relationship Diane Usher and Chalmanister III had. But remember, that was also debated if Diane Usher actually controlled the empire. Okay. But Shamshi Ilu will control the empire with later kings. And he will be around for many, many kings. <laughs> so, but I don't think Adad Mirar III was a king that Chamshi'ilu could dominate. Chamshi'ilu must be youngish, at least at this time. Right. Because he, he is around for such a long time. <laughs> uh, and they. The anti-Assyrian movement in the West, then, they, they, the Assyrians have been gone for such a long time. But 
the Syrian states, they know that the Syrians will be back. So they need to organize. And I, I don't think this invasion of Adarnior III was unexpected at all. And the city-state of Arpad has taken the lead. Arpad has rebelled before, and Arpad will rebel again. And around Arpad, the states of Syria gather to resist. They like their freedom, and they will uh, try to retain it. Arpad is in northern Syria. It's rather close to Karkar, the site of the Great Battle in 853 BC. And Arpad is also, it also very motivated to take the lead in Assyrian resistance because it's right in the path that the Assyrian army sort of always takes. Right. Uh, remember Shalmaneser III actually plundered Arpad before the Battle of Karkar? So they, they know what's coming. Right. And they will try to resist. It is likely that Aram Damascus is supporting Arpad in this. Uh, Aram Damascus is the most powerful of the Western states. But a lot of states in the West, they don't join. They think, okay, the Assyrians will be back. My dad told me about the Assyrians. Right. <laughs> or I was even there when they were here last <laughs> time. So we are not going to do anything. And that's the attitude of the Phoenicians. They're like, uh oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> yes, let's just yes, sell stuff to the Assyrians and be their friends. Right. It's too much of a hassle. <laughs> yes. And also, Hamath uh, very clearly takes a stand on, for the Assyrians. See, it is a bit unclear of who was allied with Arpad in this. And afterwards, everybody will say, oh, Arpad, those crazy bastards. We, we were never with them. Never. Oh, no, we never supported this. Oh, <laughs> right. They get total deniability is what they're going yes. for. Yes. Oh, crazy Arpadians. <laughs> Those scamps. <laughs> and now we actually have the word, the words of Adad Nirari III himself. So we can ask the great king of Assyria, what happened with this rebellion? All right. Let's see, Adad Nirari. Let's see. Let's see if I can channel the spirit of Adad Nirari. Please do. <laughs> Adad Nirari III, strong king, king of the universe, king of Assyria, son of Samsi Adad, king of the universe, king of Assyria, sons of Salmanu Asorad, Shamanasur III, king of the four quarters, I mustered my chariotry, troops, and armed forces, and gave the order to march to the land of Hatti. I crossed the Euphrates in flood. I went down to the city of Bakirahubanu, Atarsunki, son of Abirami, together with eight kings of Hatti, who had rebelled and trusted in their strength. The awesome radiance of the god Ashur, my lord, overwhelmed them. In just one year, I subdued the land of Hatti to its full extent. Towards the sea of the west I marched, I erected my lordly image. So, total Assyrian victory. And it's interesting here to see that the Assyrians still speak of the land of Hatti, because these are still the Neo-Hittites, uh, yeah. merging with Arameans. 
and they still believe that they are the Hittite Empire, <laughs> or they live in the style of the Hittite Empire, which has now been gone for 400 years. <laughs> wow. And the Assyrians still think this as well. Uh, two years ago, I did this episode for our YouTube channel. And at that time, there was a stele of Adam Nirar III, a stone monument for sale at the Bonham's auction house. And it was it included this text and other text we'll talk about. And that stone had survived for 3,000 years, pretty much. It was on sale at Bonham's for 800,000 pounds. That's amazing. Uh, and we'll we'll read uh, more from the stone from that monument. I don't know what happened to it, but I expect that it was bought, and I hope it's in a museum so people can see it. Right. But after the victory, Adarnirari the third visits Arvad. That's uh, the biggest island of Lebanon. So I'll give it again to Adarnirari the third. In the city of Arvad. In the midst of the sea, I ascended Mount Lebanon. I cut strong logs of cedar. At that time, I replaced those cedars from Mount Lebanon in the gate of the temple of the god Salmanu. My lord, the old temple which Salmanu Asarad, Shalmaneser I, my ancestor had built, became dilapidated, and I, in the stroke of inspiration, built his temple from its foundations to its parapets. I placed the cedar roof beams of Mount Lebanon to top. When this temple becomes old and dilapidated, my future prince, renovate its dilapidated parts and return the inscription to its place. This is uh, fairly interesting because, uh, first of all, the Mount Lebanon is of course not on the island of Arvad. And that was not what he said, because this started in... The, the text before it was lost. He finds on the island of Arvad a temple built by Shalmaneser I. And Shalmaneser I ruled Assyria before we started this podcast. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, of course he did. But <laughs> right, way before. <laughs> he is a powerful king of the Middle Assyrian Empire, the Second Assyrian Empire. We, the Neo-Assyrian Empire is the Third Assyrian Empire. And... Uh, he built a temple on the island of Arvad, and now Adad-Nirar III restores the, this ancient temple. It's 300 years old or thereabout. And he even writes down his hope that when the next Assyrian king comes here, he will check on the temple and restore it and give honor to Adad-Nirar III. And this shows very much how far ahead and behind them the Assyrians are thinking. Because the Assyrian kingdom in itself is over a thousand years old at this point. And even the line of kings is a thousand years old. So uh, the Assyrians are really living in the past and preparing for a future which they don't think will be much different than the past has been. And Adonirar III would be sad to know that <laughs> nobody will understand where this temple came from in 200 years. Wow. Uh, we have an, another interesting character from uh, Assyria here. It's Nergal Eres, the governor of Rasappa, one of the heartland provinces of the Assyrian Empire. And he is writing on this stele. Um, 
he writes 25 lines on the king's daily. It, uh, it's a lot of propaganda for this guy, Nergal Eres. He presents a golden sword to Adad Nirari III. And his language is very lofty. And it's an exercise in ancient ass-kissing. He's like, <laughs> oh, the, the king is so great. And I, too, am great. Wow. Uh, Arvad, of course, is a Phoenician state. And it has been pretty pre-Assyrian, pro-Assyrian. They had this small slip-up when they were on the wrong side in the Battle of Karkar in 853 BC. But they are now all pro-Assyrian. <laughs> They're like, oh, you Assyrians are so great. Oh, uh, Hamath. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hamath. They were also on the Assyrian side. And they are like, they are want to conquer Arpad now that the Assyrians have crushed Arpad. But Adad Nirari III makes a peace treaty between Arpad and Hamath. And we have this peace treaty. Wow. And, uh, Hamath then is, of course, enjoying the favor of being a loyal vassal to Assyria and really showcasing their loyalty here. Uh, but there still remains Aram Damascus, and it wasn't very clear if they were involved in this Arpad rebellion or not. And if they were, they managed to hide it from the Assyrians. So what does Aram Damascus do? The Assyrians are back in the region, and Arpad has been crushed. Aram Damascus might be next on the list. And they are the most powerful state in the area. What do you think they do? I think they're going to find someone to pick on. <laughs> yeah, the, the classic answer to that question is whenever you don't know what Aram Damascus is doing, they are fighting Israel. <laughs> right. So their attitude is mainly, oh, the Assyrians are back. Well, that must be a cue for us to attack Israel. <laughs> Again. Yes. Israel is ruled by Jehoahaz, and Damascus is ruled by Hassel still. But Damascus has the upper hand now. It seems that the Aaron Damascus goes all in and just forgets about the Assyrian royal army. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Permit close to their border in the other direction. And there is a great raid of Hassel. He will now try to seize control of all the southern trade routes. Uh, the trade routes with the Arabs mm-hmm. and the trade routes to Babylon through the desert. So Edom and Moab, two mini kingdoms around uh, in this area, they are probably vassals. But Hassel's army goes even south of Israel into uh, the area of the Philistines. And they sack the Phil- Philistine city of Gath on the coast of the Mediterranean. And we can find several destruction layers in Israel and in the area of the Philistines from this time. So Hassel really kicks every small neighbor's butt. Wow. And we don't know what the Assyrian reaction is because they must know that this is happening and that this is a golden opportunity to take down Damascus. Right. And they have They're no love. No love lost for Damascus. Split. split. Mm-hmm. But uh, so the Israelites, all they can do is pray for a savior. They're like, please, Lord, bring us someone who can beat Damascus. Because <laughs> if Aaron Damascus wasn't around and they didn't have this strong, violent king, Israel would be the most powerful kingdom in the area. So we know what Adad Neroi III does in 802 BC. He campaigns to the sea. And that's what we know. So, <laughs> so which sea? Right. Aren't there a few? <laughs> yeah, the, the Assyrian concept of a sea is... They, they don't know geography that well. So they're like, oh, huge body of water must be a sea. So they right. think Lake Van in Armenia, or in Turkey today, is a sea. They think the Mediterranean is a sea, of course. Me, me, the Mediterranean is the great green and there's also the Persian Gulf. We don't know which sea they camp into. It might have been the Baltic. No, it probably wasn't the Baltic. <laughs> but we have no idea where Adonirod III is and who is fighting. But he is campaigning to the sea. Well, or maybe that was just something they wrote to sound cool. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> right. Like, uh, what do we do? They just went and just chilled out for a while and came back and said, oh yeah, we went to the sea. Nothing was there. <laughs> and then, of course, the Assyrians would never have the capacity to campaign to the Baltic, but this would be the hour to do a campaign to the Baltic Sea. Because things are happening in Europe that will eventually then change the world. So, so first, let's... Sh- Sorry? Oh, no, I was going to say, so what's going on over there now? <laughs> yeah. We first check in with what we know since earlier. We know the Villanovans are in Italy, and they mm-hmm. will eventually become the Etruscans. We know that Chalcis and Eritrea are the strongest cities in Greece on the island of Euboea. They have the colony of Almina in Syria. Several early city-states have rose into power in uh, Greece, like Sparta, Knossos, Athens, Miletus, and Argos. In Corinth, 
we have the first shrines, an organized religion. But another thing is happening in Europe at about this time. And now we're not talking about the Mediterranean coast, where mm -hmm. everything has happened so far. But we have the rise of the Hallstatt culture. So there is a debate right now going, um, challenging this old picture of early European history. Uh, Hallstatt, the Hallstatt culture is named from its type site, like old cultures known only from archaeology are. So there is a, a, a town called Hallstatt or a place called Hallstatt close to Salzburg in Austria, Austria where there are salt mines. And around this salt mines, a culture arises from out of the Urnfield culture, which you talk about. This is an early Iron Age culture. And it's pro-Celtic, it's before the Celts, but it seems that all the Celts did not come from the Hallstatt culture. But this will influence the Celts quite a bit when they arrive, or when, when you can start talking about the Celts. But we have very distinctive goods from the Hallstatt culture. It spreads out from Hallstatt, okay. or from, from the area of Salzburg, pretty quickly. So there's a, a, a leap in, uh, in civilization, you can say, but it's not civilization in the sense that they record their history because they had no writing. And it's, it's very early to talk about this in this episode, but this is the earliest traces of the Hallstatt culture. And Hallstatt will, will be part of forming early Europe. And we'll talk more about the early European cultures when they appear, but there is no events we can report from Hallstatt, uh, of course. So I'm sure a lot of interesting stuff is happening there that we have no idea about. But we can see the archaeological traces that something important happened around this time in Austria. That's very interesting. I, I just realized Salzburg, salt mines... Yep. How very, how very clever. <laughs> Castle Salt. Castle Salt. There you go. So once again, I, I like to reflect on how interesting it is that we know so much about the Assyrians. That's why we talk about the Assyrians so much. Not, not only because they were a powerful culture and they're interesting in their conquest and stuff, but they have documented more than anyone else from this period. So for 801 BC, we go back to Adad-Nirari III, and he is attacking somebody again, like his religious duty is. Exactly. And he attacks Kubushkia. What is Kubushkia? <laughs> like, what is Kubushkia? I've never heard of this one. This is a, a small state. Like okay. the, the, there seems to be an endless supply of small states, not only north of Eurarchy, like I said in the last episode, but also um, yeah, everywhere <laughs> where the big kingdoms don't control, there are small states. And Kubushka is right between Assyria and Urartu. That's not a good place to be. Oh, gosh. Yeah, and in the squeeze zone. This campaign may have been led by Shamshi Ilu. Because Shamshi'il will show time and time again that he feels very strongly about protecting the old Bitadini territory against Urartu. 
because the Bitadini territory around Kar Shalmaneser, now a Syrian territory then, is right next to the mountains in the north, and Urartu threatened this area. So we will see in the decisions of Shamshi Ilu, the field marshal, he will have this hatred for Urartu and a desire to defend his hometown. So in a sense, he will grow into an Aramean warlord. We have seen so many small Aramean warlords. It's like the natural state of the Arameans, lead your war tribe. But this guy has the royal Assyrian army. But he's still sometimes behaving like an Aramean warlord. Hmm. wonder how that works out for him. If you Google 800 BC, you will find an, a very arbitrary event that uh, th this might be the one most known thing about 800 BC. Because it is the official end, we have decided, <laughs> of the Greek Dark Age. Okay. So Greece now enters a new period known as the Archaic, Archaic Period. So it's not ancient Greece yet, it's archaic, archaic Greece. Archaic Greece, okay. Yes, and it lasts from 800 to 480 BC. And of course, in 480 BC, ancient Greece begins with all the classical stuff. Right. But stuff, stuff we you will learn see. About in school. <laughs> yes, and we will see why this, uh, this arbitrary name change happens. Because the 8th century BC will be entirely different from the 9th century BC for the Greeks. The 8th century BC will really be the rise of the Greeks. And we, we have seen the beginning of this in our Spartan episodes and in the, in the colonization of Almina in 825 BC. So it is beginning already in the 9th century, but it will take off in, in the 8th century BC. And we will have this fantastic colonization of the whole Mediterranean, pretty much. And it will be like an explosion in this, this ancient world where things happened very slowly. The Greeks are coming from nowhere, coming from 400 years of Dark Age. And they are just sweeping the Mediterranean. And it, it will be amazing. We will dedicate several episodes to this procedure in the next century. Excellent. All right. Well, I guess that brings us to the end of the episode. And the century. And the century. Can you believe it? We're already through the 800s. Yeah, wow. we have talked about 200 years now. That's, that's a lot of talking we've done. <laughs> and we will see in the next episode uh, that this will become a lot more complicated now. The 9th century BC was... We had a lot more information than we have for the 10th century BC. Remember, we could cover a decade in one episode easily in the 10th century BC. Right. Now we'll have to go to four episodes sometimes to cover a decade for wow. the 8th century BC. And this, this process just continues. So the 6th century BC, we could do yeah, several hundred episodes about. But we are, we are going to proceed, as of right now, we are going to proceed to 701 BC and the destruction of Sennacherib. And then we will 
really need help on our Patreon to go further. So patreon.com slash fanohistory if you like this. Please exactly. contribute a uh, dollar. It helps us. Um, also, we're on YouTube. Uh, YouTube slash fanofhistory. And we are on Facebook slash fanofhistory. Twitter at the fanofhistory. If you want to be um, aware of our updates, uh, that is where Dan puts out all the fan of history updates. Also, if you want to follow Dan at Dan Horning, and if you would like to follow me, I'm at Cerulean says hi. These will be in the show notes. <laughs> also, the website is the fan of history.wordpress.com. And again, please like, subscribe, share, give us reviews on iTunes and soon i bet by the time this comes out it'll be on google play yes so uh, uh -huh. i like to talk a little more about my twitter <laughs> oh sure sure go for it it's uh, at dan horning them yes. and this is a twitter i use a lot and i use it for all my projects i do five podcasts and i think i have 10 youtube channels or something so not everything might be of interest there, but if you want to reach me and tweet to me about Fan of History, please tweet to me personally. Because the Fan of History Twitter account is mainly just automatic updates when anything is uploaded on the YouTube channel. So uh, please follow me at Dan Horning. And don't mind the Swedish stuff. Two of the podcasts <laughs> are in Swedish, so there will be some Swedish stuff. It's mostly about a mysterious murder 30 years ago. <laughs> I follow him. I think it's worthwhile. And there will, of course, be a lot of Magic the Gathering stuff as well. Oh, we, do, we do a lot of that. That is that is definitely a warning that needs to be heeded. Yes. You can listen to me and Brennan do a podcast about Magic. Uh, about magic at, uh, it's called the Magic Gathering Strat Show. Yes. We've been doing that. Uh, we just did episode 57. And before that, it was called The Standard Popper Show, which we did almost 40 episodes of. Yeah, so we are. We have another guy on that show as well. He's Sam. Sam, yep. Uh, he's there for color. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's a colorful character. <laughs> we should talk about what we are doing next time. Oh, okay, on what episode, are we? Episode 39, we will take a world tour. We did this at the beginning uh, in 900 BC, and we'll now take a world tour and look at what's, which civilizations are where in the world in 800 BC. And this ep episode 39 will clearly show how much we know now compared to 900 BC. So I think it will be twice as long as the 900 BC episode. But we will tour the world uh, in 800 BC and check out everything. And there is a lot of places that we don't talk about because there is no known there are no known events from those places. We will now mention all of the civilizations we know about. Right. And I have visited some ruins. Give a little insight into that. Yeah, more on the Olmecs of Mexico. Yeah. It's closer to me, so uh, <laughs> I have been through several ruins in that area. I find it extremely fascinating. Um, just, just 
you know, when you can actually kind of reach and touch something that someone from that age has worked on and it's still standing and it's still viable. It's, I find it amazing. Yeah, it's, it's hard to convey the Olme culture in the po- podcast because we don't, we can't, they have writing, but we can't read it. So we don't know a lot in, but it's very visual. It's very artistic. It's big pyramids and stuff. Yep. Giant heads. And it's the origin of all things in Mexico. It's like the, uh, the Aztecs and the Mayans. Yep. It's, it's fascinating. All right. Well, I guess that's going to be it for this week. So I am Brennan. And I'm Dan. Thank you for listening. <laughs> this has been The Fan of History. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash fanofhistory. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks, and see you next time. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.